I'm Apollo 16 astronaut Charlie Duke, the 10th man to walk on the moon. And you got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. This is the Space Show, Australia, on 88.3 Southern FM. Welcome to the Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I am Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show, we go to Houston's Rice University, where they have been marking a memorable anniversary. Then we check in on the status of the Artemis One launch attempt. An American spacecraft is on a collision course with an asteroid as an Italian craft is flying alongside to witness the crash. And... If time allows, the 45th anniversary of the launch of the Voyager spacecraft. Let's take a trip to the moon. Come on, let's go for the moon. I want to go to the moon. Let's take a trip to the moon. Last Monday was the 60th anniversary of the historic speech by United States President John Kennedy at Rice University on the outskirts of Houston. To mark the occasion, a group of politicians, former NASA employees, astronauts and schoolchildren gathered at the same stadium. One of the speakers was NASA Administrator Bill Nelson. Throughout America's story, there are defining days, days when minds change, hearts fill, and imaginations soar, days when visions transform the trajectory of the American story, which is our story. And one of those days happened 60 years ago. It happened in this same city, at this same stadium in the same sweltering heat of a sunny September day. And on that day, 60 years ago, seven famous words that you've heard repeated carried across this stadium and across the country. We choose to go to the moon. President Kennedy knew that vision would be hard, not easy. He made that clear. He said, What he said, we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. He understood we still had to make major scientific and societal advances, but he also sensed something else. Our country's can-do spirit. It's a spirit that drives us to make the impossible possible. And 60 years ago, we came together to do just that. The space program propelled to the forefront of culture and consciousness. It galvanized a historic effort that we are now the stewards of. We must never stop daring to take the next moonshot. And moonshots don't just happen in the cosmos, but also here on Earth. So it is today at the John F. Kennedy Library that President Joe Biden is taking the cancer moonshot to new heights. We can end cancer as we know it. And today, in Space City, a new generation, the Artemis generation, stands ready. Ready to return humanity to the moon 
and then to take us further than ever before to Mars. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. Some things never change. But even after 60 years, they don't change. Some nations on our planet do not engage in our mission of goodwill. But we go in peace, as President Kennedy said. And today we have invited other peoples of the earth to join us in this great international adventure. Doing what is hard and achieving what is great that is what stirs humankind. That's what unites us. With inspiration and innovation, no Herculean effort is too large. No moonshot is beyond our reach. You've seen already the James Webb Space Telescope. It's giving humanity a new view of our universe, and we have never, ever seen that before. And from the new forming of stars to devouring black holes, this telescope is revealing all this and more. And now the artist's generation is about to leave quite a mark. This generation, all of you, students from all over America, students throughout the world, this generation will choose to go to Mars. And that journey begins right now with humanity's return to the moon. Obviously, we had all hoped that Artemis I would already be on the way to the moon. But the NASA team has been working around the clock. Their resolve and perseverance are unrivaled. And I have full faith in this team and the mission. We will launch when we are ready, but mark my words, we are going. And when the final go is given, Artemis I will roar to life and soar to the moon. And every observation we make and every lesson we learn on this first Artemis journey prepares us and the way for humans to venture even further. Ladies and gentlemen, Mars is calling. Why? Because it's in our DNA to explore. Billions of years ago, the dry, toxic red planet we know as Mars might have once been like the Earth. Where did the water go? Why did the atmosphere change? Humans can discover much more than robotic explorers. We are more efficient, not to mention our intuition. And these missions of tomorrow will be sparked by the accomplishments of the Artemis generation today. It's a new era of pioneers, star sailors, thinkers, and adventurers. They are ready to learn what it will take to establish a new community on a cosmic shore. Sixty years ago, President Kennedy put wind in our sails on the new sea of space exploration, and that mission is never ending. It's a mission about science and the advancement of the human spirit to expand what is possible. Let us continue the quest to unfold this universe. And let us continue to find unity in our discovery. So together, as Don Quixote reminds us, let us continue to dream the impossible dream that now becomes real. And then let us traverse the untouched terrain of the once unreachable stars. That was Bill Nelson, the administrator of NASA, former politician. Uh, well, some people say the NASA administrator has to be a politician anyway. And he was speaking at Rice University 
on the 60th anniversary of that famous speech by President John Kennedy. Now, following Nelson, there was a parade of politicians across the stage at Rice University. One of them was Representative Brian Babin, who represents the state of Texas. In May of 1961, from the Speaker's rostrum in the House of Representatives, President Kennedy charged Congress with an ambitious mission to send astronauts to the moon. But to accomplish this extraordinary feat, NASA realized that they would need a new facility to spearhead human space exploration, and folks, Houston answered that call. One year later, President Kennedy stood right here in Rice University Stadium to proclaim this city of Houston, this state of Texas, this country of the United States was not built by those who waited and rested and wished to look behind them Houston was given a mission, the Manned Spacecraft Center. Now NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston would lead this country's extraordinary efforts in getting Americans to the moon. Kennedy declared, we choose to go to the moon in this decade and to do other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You've heard this many times today. But because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one that we intend to win, and the others too. As you all know, in 1969, America accomplished the goal of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth, a feat never before achieved by any other country and we did it five more times. From successfully landing 12 pairs of boots on the moon and operating the historic Mission Control Center to managing the Orion spacecraft program and the International Space Station, Johnson Space Center in Houston has contributed critically essential components of the space exploration mission. None of this would have been possible without the collaboration of entrepreneurs and academic minds right here in Houston and right here at Rice University. Partnerships that have built Houston into the global epicenter of space exploration. America is today, 60 years after Kennedy's remarkable proclamation, once again on the cusp of launching the most daring exploration program that humanity has ever seen by sending astronauts back to the moon in pursuit of going even further where no one has ever gone before. And as Kennedy said in his address to Congress in 1961, now it is time to take longer strides, time for a great new American enterprise, time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement, which in many ways may hold the key to our future right here on Earth. I'm very, very proud of the work that's being done here, and I look forward to Houston continuing to take this great nation and the world to new, longer strides in human space exploration, to the moon, to Mars, and even beyond. I would like to echo some more words that President Kennedy used to close his speech 60 years ago. He asked, I asked for God's blessing on the most hazardous, the most dangerous, and the greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked. The mission continues. Thank you, Houston. That was Representative Brian Babin. Another representative who spoke was Al Green, also from Texas. To the students who are here today, are you ready to go back to the moon? Do you believe we can go to Mars? Would you like to go to Mars? Well, first you're gonna to have to listen to this speech. Friends, President Kennedy had something unique. The French call it je ne sais quoi, something very special. 
It was that something special that made him very special among the presidents of the United States of America. And when he gave his speech right here at Rice University, he explained to us and engendered within us a can-do, we-can-do-it, and it must be done attitude that permeated the zeitgeist of his time. In his inaugural address, he indicated, let us go forth to lead the land we love, asking his blessings and help. But knowing that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own. He was a believer in getting it done by putting our hands on whatever issue was to be done and making sure that we were successful because we are Americans. We do things, we get them done, and we will be the first to do them because we were the first to go to the moon. <laughs> Nearly two years later, President Kennedy, this was after his inaugural address, reduced the impossible to the difficult. And the difficult he reduced to a matter of choice when he proclaimed that we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. But what he said about going to the moon was something that young people across the length and breadth of this country took to heart. Young people decided that they wanted to do the difficult things. They decided to major in math and physics and engineering because they wanted to sure, assure this country that they too believed that we could do the difficult things. These young people did these things because they were hard. And his response, President Kennedy's response to the naysayers and doubting Thomases was captured when he extolled by way of exemplar, this city of Houston, Texas, this state, this country of the United States was not built by those who waited and rested and wished to look behind them. Further, he indicated the exploration of space will go ahead whether we join in it or not. No nation which expects to be the leader of other nations can expect to stay behind in the race for space. President Kennedy, the great president, the president who led us into space, led this nation to believe that although the magnificent insular, this island that we know as Earth, is our genesis, our preeminent destiny, my preeminent destiny is the stars. Are you ready to go to the stars? Let's do it. It is our preeminent destiny. When President Kennedy spoke 60 years ago, television from space for the Americans was not possible. Nowadays, it is pretty much routine. Greetings from the International Space Station to all of you at Rice Stadium in Houston. I'm NASA astronaut Chell Lindgren, joined by my crewmates and fellow NASA astronauts Bob Hines and Jessica Watkins, as well as European Space Agency astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti. We are honored to join the 60th anniversary celebration of John F. Kennedy's historic moonshot speech. Today is a day to reflect on how far we have come and to reaffirm our commitment to the exploration of space for the benefit of all. The Apollo program was an awe-inspiring example of what we are capable of when we commit our talents and resources to a complex goal. We are proud to continue that bold tradition today with more than two decades of continuous presence aboard the International Space Station. The work we're doing here on station builds on the Apollo program and helps to prepare us for the next chapter in human history under the Artemis program. We'll return to the moon and from there, we'll prepare for human exploration of Mars. 
As a testbed for deep space exploration, the station is helping us learn how to keep astronauts healthy during long-duration space travel and demonstrating technologies for human and robotic exploration beyond low Earth orbit. International collaboration is what made the dream of a scientific and commercial orbital laboratory a reality. The remarkable achievements of the International Space Station are made possible by the diversity of talents and experience international partners bring to the project. With Artemis, NASA and its international partners will build on the decades of collaboration to press forward to the next frontier and land the first woman and the first person of color on the surface of the moon. Our long-term goal has always been to send humans to Mars, and the moon is an important step on that journey. With the experience we gain through Artemis, we will establish sustainable human transportation, habitation, infrastructure, operations, and science that enables deep space exploration. As we celebrate President Kennedy's historic speech, we are reminded that we count on the next generation to carry on the passion of exploration. We need you, the next generation of scientists, engineers, explorers, and other STEM professionals to join us in the excitement and make this dream possible. The Apollo generation laid the foundation of exploration. The Artemis program will now carry us to the moon, Mars, and beyond. This is the Space Show. Southern FM. The sounds of the Bayside. There's an American flag on the moon. We never looked at such a pretty moon. It's just the beginning. You know we've won the race. Oh, glory will soon be all over the place. The Americans that get to the moon. And on this evening's The Space Show, we are at Rice University. Where, 60 years ago, President John Kennedy made that very famous speech. Well, after the politicians, onto the stage came two astronauts, Jean-Luc Christian, a French astronaut, and Shannon Walker, a NASA astronaut, who just happens to be the wife of Australian-born astronaut Andy Thomas. Here's what they had to say. Good morning. At the time of President Kennedy's speech, I was a candidate at the French Air Force Academy. Like many other young people on the planet, I understood that a new era of space exploration had begun. I understood that fantastic doors were quickly opening over our heads. And I realized that our dreams would impose efforts and sacrifices and occasionally losses. One phrase in President Kennedy's speech remained in my mind and helped sometimes. If this capsuled history of our progress teaches us anything, it is that man, in his quest for knowledge and progress, is determined and cannot be deterred. Thanks to President Bush to space exploration, each of us in the job got his or her inspirational lesson. I was not alive when President Kennedy made his speech here in this stadium. But I was a four-year-old living in Houston when we first walked on the moon. I remember being in my backyard with my parents and my older sister looking up at the moon that was rising over the roof of our house. I remember my parents saying something to the effect of, we have people there. It was then that I decided I wanted to be an astronaut. The part of President Kennedy's speech that always resonated with me is that iconic line about doing things because they are hard. But then it's the next phrase. He said, because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and our skills. It was certainly true then, 
and it is still true now. Big, difficult challenges demand the best of our energies and our skills and our humanity. The future of humanity through space exploration depends on the strong acceptance of ethical values that should already drive our civilization. All of us space travelers can witness that the more we climb, the more we forget about the struggles on Earth. And the more we feel the fragile soul of our beautiful home planet. The full beauty of the Earth appears with distance. And we can appreciate, thanks to the amazing discoveries of the Hubble and James Webb telescopes. Jean Lu, you are right about the beauty of the Earth. Looking down from the space station, one has a unique vantage point to take in the wonders of our planet. The continents, the oceans, the clouds. You can see that we are all one together on our precious and yes, our fragile Earth. Turning one's gaze to the stars, you can feel the enormity of the universe. You know that we need to continue to explore and we need to continue it in peace and harmony together. Let's, let's us all preserve the beauty of our planet and get ready to pursue on the same ship the fantastic odyssey of space exploration. And we are doing that right now on a launch pad at the Kennedy Space Center is our first Artemis rocket. Very soon, we'll be launching once more towards the moon. NASA is working with our commercial partners and international partners to establish the first long-term presence at the moon. Jointly, we will venture out into our solar system to explore and see and understand. We will do it together for the benefit of all humankind. Space is a peaceful place where international cooperation is a success. And this is a kind of a joke. Just ask politicians why spaceships such as their atmospheric colleagues don't drop a flight plan before flying over so many foreign countries, sometimes not so friendly. Thanks, America for your international cooperation initiative. And thank you. And thanks to all our international partners who are with us on this journey. That was astronaut Jean-Luc Christian and Shannon Walker speaking on Monday in the stadium at Rice University. Come and take a trip in my rocket ship We'll have a lovely afternoon Kiss the world goodbye and away we fly Destination moon Travel fast as light till we're lost from sight The earth is like a toy balloon The first launch attempt of the space launch system will not happen until later this month at the earliest. The tentative date for liftoff is September the 23rd. 
Two previous launch attempts had to be abandoned, as explained by space show reporter Angelo de Grazia from the Kennedy Space Centre on last week's program. On September the 8th, NASA officials gave this update on the status of Artemis 1. Here to talk with us about the path forward are Jim Free, Associate Administrator for the Exploration Systems Development Mission Director at NASA Headquarters, Mike Bolger, Exploration Ground Systems Program Manager at Kennedy, and John Blevins, SLS Chief Engineer at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center. Uh, first, we'll hear from Jim Free. Jim. Yeah, thanks, Catherine. Um, so to that end, we, we've asked for a, a couple dates on the range um, to, to support our planning. Um, you'll hear about the tanking test uh, in a few minutes from uh, John Blevins and, and Mike Bolger. Um, but our, our requested dates we, we put on yesterday were the 23rd of September and the 27th of September. Um, those dates uh, were, 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 I mentioned on Saturday that we're trying to work with other NASA programs and obviously other users on the range as well. Um, the, the 23rd we, we picked, uh, we're trying to deconflict with the DART impact. Um, the, the conflict there is use of the deep space network. Um, we we want to stay outside of, of their, uh, I'll say, lockdown of, of, the, of the DSN, um, which is why we picked the 23rd, so that some of our critical events, if we were fortunate enough to get the waiver from the range and to actually launch on the 23rd, our critical requirements post-initial launch would fall on the other side of the impact of DART on the 26th. Um, so that's, that's how we came up uh, with the 23rd. And then the 27th of September keeps us um, on the right side of uh, DART, or on the back side of DART, I should say, and then in advance of uh, some other activities on the range that are scheduled for the 30th. There's actually no conflict with uh, anything on the 27th. Um, and then we're looking at a third date, but that is a constraint with Crew-5. I mentioned that briefly. Um, we're, we're just trying to work with the Crew-5 program and obviously, uh, Kennedy, um, from a consumables perspective, with other activities on the range, with replenishment times for the uh, for the GN2 between launches. So uh, we'll we'll hold to those two dates. So let me uh, let me turn it over to uh, uh, to, to Mike Bolger and let him him talk about the the processing going on at the pad. Hey, thank you, Jim, and hello, everybody. Yeah, so I wanted to give you a, a quick update on how things are going. So um, since standing down from last Saturday's launch attempt, um, we've been busy deconfiguring from launch and then working to repair the hydrogen leak that we found during tanking. Um, the, the repair is basically to remove and replace seals on the 8-inch fill and drain quick disconnect and then also the 4-inch bleed QD that are both both at that flight-to-ground interface between the LH2 um, tail service mass umbilical or TSMU and the core stage. So to perform that work, we have to demate the um, LH2 TSMU plate from the flight plate. So there are two plates there that come together, one on the flight side and one on the ground side, to gain access to the QDs. Um, once the plates are disconnected, the workers install transportation caps in the various lines and a plate cover to protect against contamination um, while we do the work. We're, we're making great progress. Um, yesterday, we completed the plate demate and began inspection of the seals. Um, following that, we set up an enclosure around the area to protect the hardware from weather and any other environmental conditions while we perform the seal R&R. Um, regarding the enclosure, kind of imagine a, a plastic tent, if you will, that encloses both the workers and the flight, and the flight plate um, on some TSMU access stands that we've got out there. So, again, kind of imagine a, a plastic tent, and we've got um, some conditioned air going in there as well. Um, to keep the environment good for the work that we're doing. Following that, we're looking at a, a cryo demo for verification of the seal. We, we set a target date of September 17th. Our timeline to get to that is pretty close, so it, it could, um, I would not be surprised to see it slip a day or two, but we're targeting September 17th, and that cryo event will be to verify um, the seal R&R um, is good. Um, let's see from there. We'll determine whether we stay at the pad for a launch attempt in launch period 26 or whether we roll back. I would tell you the team is making great progress. Um, morale is good. It's still excited for this opportunity that we've got. 
Um, as always, we'll launch when we're ready. You know, we've talked with our team last week, wasn't our week, but we know our day's coming and we're excited about it. Um, so with that, I'll close my opening remarks and pass it over to John Blevins. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, let me tell you, from an SLS perspective, we continue to look at life-limited items. Uh, we've got a list. We uh, look at that in very detailed. We performed uh, high-resolution visual inspections of the vehicle as well as walk-downs, uh, and so we're working hand-in-hand with our partners at the ground systems. The state of the vehicle looks good for the next launch attempt, and so we're ready to go. Uh, really encouraged by the fact that it's been less than one week uh, since We've had the, uh, the one scrub that was due to the uh, leak, and it looks like we've got a good plan going forward, as, as uh, Mike talked about, with the changes in process and everything. Uh, I will just add, you know, when you've got a, you know, two new systems combined like this, this really isn't out of maybe the norm of expectation in engineering to work with those issues, and so I feel really encouraged about where we're at with the vehicle, and we've been able to turn around this, uh, this one leak issue within a week uh, with a good plan. A few days earlier, Mike Serafin, the Artemis mission manager, explained to reporters why hydrogen flammability is a concern. Um, you know, when, when you have a fuel source in atmospheric air that contains roughly 20% oxygen, when you mix the two, all you need is an ignition source to uh, close the fire triangle. So, we know that when you get above roughly a 4% concentration of, of hydrogen in ambient air, you're at risk of having a, a flammability event or a, a flammability hazard. Uh, we were seeing in excess of that by two, two, two or three times our, our acceptable concentration limit. So it was pretty clear that we weren't going to be able to work our way through it like we did on Monday in terms of the, uh, the managing of the leak. Uh, every every time we saw the leak, it w- it was a large leak that immediately exceeded our flammability uh, limits. So, um, you know, again, a couple of techniques uh, were tried, and, and we just couldn't get there today. Before hydrogen is loaded into the SLS rocket, the fuel tank and supply pipes need to be purged of oxygen using nitrogen. The enclosure affords us uh, the ability to uh, provide what we call a purge at that interface. And the purge allows us to push uh, nitrogen in there to essentially inert or push out any oxygen in there. So it reduces the likelihood of a, uh, a flammability hazard. So if we were to just pump regular old air in there, regular old air has oxygen in it. And, and we eliminate that oxygen by creating an enclosure and, and putting nitrogen there in there to displace any oxygen such that if there is a hydrogen leak, you've got one leg of the, the fire triangle removed. 88.3 Southern FM. On air and online via the free Community Radio Plus app. Download it now from the App Store or Google Play. In our Artemis One launch status update, we heard that there are several dates that Artemis One cannot be launched on. One of these was for the impact of the double asteroid redirection test spacecraft with the asteroid Diamorphos. That will happen on September the 27th. Lindley Johnson explains. Hi there, I'm Lindley Johnson and I'm your friendly local planetary defense officer. And by local, I mean this planet. So yeah, it is a real thing, the Planetary Defense Coordination Office. This was featured in a recent Hollywood movie, Don't Look Up, uh, but it's based upon a real office at NASA headquarters. Uh, And I am the real Teddy uh, Oglethorpe. All joking aside, though, so what is uh, planetary defense? Uh, That is the term that's used to encompass all the activities that are needed to, first of all, find the asteroids and comets that are out there in the solar system that can come close uh, to Earth's orbit over time, Uh, figuring out uh, what we can do about it, uh, working both within the U.S. uh, government and with our international colleagues around the world. Then uh, we are working on technologies and techniques that could be used to deflect an asteroid in space. 
So what would we do if we found an object that was on an impact trajectory with the Earth? Well, we're working on that too. NASA launched last November the double asteroid redirection test. And this is our first test of a planetary defense capability. Uh, the uh, double asteroid redirection test, or DART uh, mission for short, launched from Vandenberg Space Force Base uh, last November. Uh, so it is on its way uh, to its target, the Didymos asteroid system. Now the DART spacecraft is a relatively small spacecraft uh, that will impact the moon of Didymos and demonstrate this, this capability of a kinetic impactor uh, to change the orbit uh, of an asteroid. Uh, the principle for uh, changing an orbit is you just need to change the velocity at which the object is moving just by less than 1%. And over time, that, that changes the orbit uh, of the asteroid, about the primary asteroid. Uh, so DART uh, has a, uh, a companion riding along with it, a CubeSat that has been contributed by the Italian Space Agency called Lucia Cube, and it will deploy Lucia Cube about 10 days uh, before the impact. Uh, Lucia Cube will follow it, follow us in, and take images of the impact and of the of the smaller asteroids, so we know more about its uh, size and, and composition. So the Didymos binary asteroid system is what we call a eclipsing binary in that uh, the orbit of the moon is aligned uh, with our view from it, of it here from Earth. So Earth-based uh, observatories uh, can see the change in the brightness of the asteroid as the moon moves uh, in front of and then behind it. Uh, so that changes the light curve at a very regular interval and so that's how we are able to determine what the period of the orbit is right now uh, for the moon. Uh, so Earth-based observatories have been observing that for many years, and we understand that quite well. And so DART will impact, and then uh, after the impact, uh, we will again observe the system from these ground-based observatories and see how much we have changed the, the orbit uh, of Dimorphos uh, from DART. So coming attractions, uh, the impact will occur on the evening of September 26th, uh, and it will be broadcast on NASA TV and other uh, NASA social media. And an update on that impact time. Uh, it's going to be on Tuesday, September the 27th at 9.15am Australian Eastern Standard Time. So that's uh, Tuesday, September the 27th at 9.15am Australian Eastern Standard Time. And the uh, Lycia um, CubeSat was successfully released from DART yesterday at 9.14am Australian Eastern Time at a relative speed of 4 kilometres per second. Now, the same observatory that discovered Pluto will help detect the effect of the DART impact into Diamorphos. This is Lowell Observatory. Lowell is one of many observatories around the world that will be observing the DART impact, NASA's first ever planetary defense test mission to see how much a spacecraft impact can deflect an asteroid in its orbit. So this is where Pluto was discovered and we are still doing research in all areas of astronomy today. So let's go check it out. This is the Pluto telescope, the telescope that was used to discover Pluto almost 100 years ago. So here we are at the Clark Telescope. This is where Percival Lowell sat to observe Mars. Let's head on over to the Lowell Discovery Telescope about an hour south of Flagstaff, which is where we are going to be collecting data for the DART mission. And the reason we're all the way out here in the middle of this forest is that we have really dark skies here. And this is the Lowell Discovery Telescope. This is what a 4.3 meter telescope looks like. This is what we will be using to study Didymos and Dimorphos in the days and weeks after DART impact. The DART spacecraft will be hitting an asteroid called Dimorphos. It's special because it's a binary asteroid, which means a satellite around a larger asteroid called Didymos. And DART will actually be hitting Dimorphos. 
And what we will be measuring is how much DART changes the orbit of Dimorphos around Didymos. So this is an important test for planetary defense mitigation strategies in case we ever have to do this for real. The Lowell Discovery Telescope is one of many telescopes around the world which will be used to study Didymos and Dimorphos. It's really a global coordinated effort. And what we're looking at here is a large 4.3 meter primary mirror that's in the middle of the telescope tube here. Up at the top is a secondary mirror. The secondary mirror up top there is what is focusing the light down onto the instruments and allows us to take images with the camera that's located down at the bottom. This is maybe one of my favorite hidden rooms at the telescope. We're like standing inside the telescope room. Underneath the telescope, 100 tons above your head. Held up by this and this, which is cool. It's sort of, as you can see, the, the highest peak around here. Uh, just over 8,000 feet. I come up here for sunset. Because you know, the sun's setting right there. It's, just, it's perfect. For DART, we're going to be collecting images of the night sky. And typically, an observer would be here in front of one of these consoles, controlling the instrument and taking images like these as they're coming in off the telescope. DART is really a sort of before and after experiment. We need to understand the system before the spacecraft intentionally impacts, and then we have to understand what the outcome of that impact event is. As we watch from the Earth, Dimorphos will pass in front of Didymos and behind Didymos. What we will be doing with those images is measuring the brightness of Didymos in those images and looking at how that brightness changes. And those dips in brightness allow us to measure when uh, these eclipses happen and measure the orbit period of Dimorphos. And so you have essentially a fixed star field here. All the white dots are stars of different brightness. And moving through this field is Didymos and Dimorphos, which again, we can't distinguish them as discrete points of light, but we have that small object moving through the field of view. So after impact, we will then be able to go back and start observing intensely, looking for those mutual events, those eclipse events of Dimorphos passing in front of and behind Didymos. And on each one of these frames, we're measuring the brightness to assess whether or not it's undergoing one of these events where Dimorphos is passing in front of or behind, and using those to determine the orbit period of Dimorphos around Didymos. This is such a cool experiment, it's such a singular experiment. Using the ground-based telescopes like this one and others around the world to, to watch the system and see how it's affected by this impact event because that's really what's going to give us the answer to what did DART do at the time of impact. And that will be exciting to see how that evolves over the days and weeks following that impact. It's now 45 years since the launch of the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 spacecraft, both of them now leaving our solar system. Ed Stone and others describe the mission and their experience. We knew we were on a journey of discovery when we launched the Voyager spacecraft, but we had no idea how much there was to discover. We had a sense that we knew what it felt like to be Magellan or Columbus. Time after time, we're surprised by uh, seeing things that we had not expected or even imagined, and volcanoes erupting from a moon isle, the possibility of a liquid water ocean under the icy crust of Europa, Titan, where we found an atmosphere, the Uranus, small moon Miranda, which had one of the most complex geologic surfaces we've seen, even at Neptune, Triton, 40 degrees above absolute zero, even there, there were geysers erupting. It's the only spacecraft that's gone by Uranus. It's the only spacecraft that's gone by Neptune. Everything we know about those planets, we know from Voyager. To see those first pictures coming in from the outer solar system, for the first time, what had been a point of light in the sky was a place. I really credit the people that designed the mission, both the engineers and the mission planners and scientists, because not only did they build an extremely robust, durable spacecraft, but they had the vision to send it on a path such that it could get out into interstellar space and carry a gold record. And here was this Noah's Ark of human culture that was being sent to the outer planets and then beyond to wander in the interstellar darkness for a billion years. Hello from the children of planet Earth. On Valentine's Day, 1990, Voyager 1 looked homeward. And what did it find? Not the frame-filling Apollo Earth, but instead 
that one pixel Earth. That's here. That's home. The Voyager spacecraft are in the outer layer of the heliosphere, the giant bubble the sun creates around itself with its supersonic wind. Voyager today is headed for the edge of interstellar space. That's the space between stars, and it's filled with material that has been injected by the explosion of stars, matter which came from a particular direction, creating a wind which has shaped the bubble in which the solar system is surrounded. Voyager really has changed our view of the solar system. This will be a milestone in space exploration, leaving the solar system, leaving the bubble, and entering interstellar space for the first time. Dharti ke baasiyon ki or se namaskar. Yehi dai khui an aur akanoizoid. Tanti auguri e saluti. Ai boa. Peresalaimo previti iz našao svitu, bažajemo šťastja, zdoroja in mnoha jelita. And they were some of the voices on the Voyager record, yes. Voyager 1 is actually in interstellar space and Voyager 2 is well on the way there. And uh, it was rather sad to see the other day that... Um, Ed Stone, who's been the mission scientist for 50 years, is now in a wheelchair. Well, this has been The Space Show. Next week on the show, we're expecting Angelo de Grazia. He's right this very moment, high above the Pacific Ocean, jetting back to Australia to bring us the, uh, the news and excitement of what he's been doing in the United States. And... Uh, Yes, Diamorphus will soon have an impact on it. Well, this has been The Space Show. I'm Andrew Rennie.